If you were to ask the average person, what is your greatest need? Authority, that of an, an outside authority, would unlikely make the list. Almost assuredly, it wouldn't make the top of the list. Probably if you were to think about uh, things that maybe we would answer, uh, things that we need, we might say more money, a better job, a better education, improved mental health, the list could go on. But the idea of authority, needing authority, we're pretty suspicious of authority, right? We tend to view authority in, in, in rather suspect categories. And yet, deep down, I think we also sense that it's what we need. We sense that the world is broken. We can even think about some of those things that Danica was just praying for, the police officer Peter Jervin who just died and wanting the authorities to bring justice, to execute plans to keep officers safe, or we think about the recent earthquake in Syria and Turkey, and we look to authorities in those moments to step in and care for the citizens of their countries. But on an even greater level, outside of just recent calamities that are restricted in scope, we think of just the, the whole world in general and the need for someone to take charge and make things right. Our passage today has to do specifically with that theme of authority. And as Matt read it, you, you'll have noticed, hopefully, that the first section, verses 21 through 28, has to do with Jesus possessing authority over the demonic. Second, in verses 29 to 31, we see Jesus' authority over disease. And then I want you to look with me at verse 32 to 34, where we get something of a summary of both of these. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Notice how both those themes present. Sick or oppressed by demons, the two things that we saw in the immediate scenes before. Peter's mother-in-law who was healed of her sickness and the man who was oppressed by a demon. And the whole city, verse 32, was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who, again, notice this, who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And so we see the, the final section of our passage today is really summarizing the two earlier scenes, right? Jesus has authority over the demonic and over disease. And this, where am I getting this idea of authority? Well, we see this in verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. And then again, in verse 27, they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? In both instances, there's amazement with respect to the authority of Christ. And this word authority will show up elsewhere in uh, some of the passages that soon follow. It's clearly a theme here. So we see Jesus is the one with authority over the demonic and the disease, and we might summarize it this way then. Jesus is the authoritative king of God's arriving kingdom. Jesus is the authoritative king of God's inbreaking, arriving kingdom. Let's go through the, each of these two scenes then, 
as we seek to understand these. In verse 21, you read with me here, and they, Jesus and his disciples there, they went into Capernaum, which is in Galilee, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching, which wouldn't have been terribly abnormal. He's teaching in the synagogue, that's a place for that. But the folks there, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus teaches, unlike the scribes, the scribes, their role was to be experts in the law, experts in the word of God, but therefore they appealed to the word of God. They didn't teach on their own authority, but they taught with the authority saying, this is what God's word says. Or, as traditions developed, they would say, this is what so-and-so says about the word of God. All their teaching and authority was derivative, though. Jesus, however, teaches as one who possesses authority inherently. He can come on the scene and say, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. And immediately, in verse 23, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. I want you to just imagine this scene, right? It's like, kind of like a church service. And some man who's possessed by a demon, unclean spirit, that is like uh, ritually unclean. This is another word in, for Mark. This is how Mark describes demons at times. But this man just barges in as if he's, he's aiming at Jesus. Jesus isn't going and finding him. He's going and finding Jesus. Remember, we just had the showdown between Jesus and Satan with the temptation of Jesus. And now further, uh, fallen angels are coming and confronting Jesus here. And the demonic man, the demon, what have you, cries out, what have you to do with us? Which is sort of a Hebrew way of saying, why are you messing with us? What business do you have coming and getting in our territory, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus, notice this, rebukes him. In the presence of all these people in the synagogue, he rebukes the man with the unclean spirit, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And you'll notice that they see his authority to expel the demon, to be able to command the demon and tell the demon to leave as a demonstration of the authority of his teaching. He speaks with authority, even commanding demons, and they obey. And this is in contrast to uh, exorcists that would have existed at that time, where they would have, in order to uh, expel a demon, would have like invoked certain incantations and things. In the name of this, or this, this sort of phraseology, therefore be expelled. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't have to do any sort of magic. He doesn't have to invoke anything else. He just tells the demon to be gone, and it is. And so we see Jesus having authority over the demonic. Secondly, we see Jesus having authority over disease or illness, sickness. 
Verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue. So we have one scene at the synagogue and one when he leaves the synagogue. And he enters the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon is another name for Peter. So this is Peter's house with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, sickness, disease. And immediately they told him about her. And Jesus came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And we see here this mention that immediately he takes her by the hand, and she's healed. And not only healed, but she immediately serves. In other words, the idea is she's not sort of partially healed or on her way. It's like, here's a medicine, you'll get better within 24 hours. But immediately, she is able, she's so restored that she's actually able to go right back into serving them serving others. And so again, this passage displays Jesus' authority over the demonic and disease, as we saw summarized then in verse 32 and 34, which we already read. Jesus is the authoritative king of God's arriving kingdom. Now, in the section prior to this, Mark 1 through 20, we saw the arrival of God's kingdom in the arrival of Jesus. The book began with the prophets predicting the arrival of the kingdom, Malachi and Isaiah. We also see John the Baptist preparing the way for it in verses 1 through 13. And then finally, in the passage Dan preached last week, we see Jesus announcing the arrival of the kingdom, calling people to enter it, repent and believe. And now here in verses 21 to 34, we get to see For the first time, something of the effects of the kingdom. The arrival of God's kingdom means the recovery of God's effective rule over creation. Undoing the curse, pushing back disease, and pushing back the forces of darkness, demons. It's a confrontation of kingdoms, and Christ's is winning. Now, these displays of authority over disease and the demonic, they're not meant to be the point in themselves then. Rather, they serve to point to Jesus as the king who is bringing the kingdom. They are evidences, in other words, of the arrival of that saving kingdom and pointers to the king. This is why in the very next scene, Jesus is going to withdraw himself from the crowds. He's attracted large crowds. And yet he withdraws himself, saying that the reason I came, I'm going to withdraw myself because the reason I came was to preach. If you look at verse 38, he says, he said to them, let us go to the next towns, go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came, came out to preach. Or elsewhere in the book, he demands silence from those that he's just healed. We're going to see that. As he heals people, he demands that they stay silent. You see, Jesus isn't after the fame of the crowds. He's not after gathering to himself those who are attracted to him merely as a miracle worker. He is after true disciples who will embrace him as he truly is and his true mission. Jesus is the authoritative king of God's arriving kingdom. Now, as I was thinking about this passage and thinking about that message, Jesus as the authoritative king of God's arriving kingdom, 
I wanted to reflect on what it looks like for this, this reality of Jesus' authority to come into contact with our contemporary world. What does it look like for Jesus' authority when it, when, it, when it brushes up against, confronts, comes into contact with our contemporary context, our contemporary needs, our contemporary sensibilities? And as I thought about this, I thought um, there, there's sort of two elements that seem to be in tension. On the one hand, we oppose authority oftentimes, and yet we also feel a deep need for it. So first, we often oppose authority. We are resistant, oftentimes incredibly suspicious of authority, right? I'm just making descriptive observations. Many view authority as inherently corrupt and oppressive. According to postmodernism, claims to authority are essentially just power plays of one group trying to dominate another. Have you guys heard this? If you haven't heard it, you've probably experienced it. If you claim to have authority or you make a truth claim, it is just seen as trying to dominate another. And so any sort of authority is inherently oppressive and suspicious and corrupt. Or, in another, in another area, you consider, just consider our American heritage. Our country was born out of revolt against authority. Suspicion of authority is sort of baked into our society, into our constitution. We have the slogan, don't tread on me, right? We want our freedoms. We see authority as having this sort of natural bent towards tyranny. We're automatically suspicious. Or you notice the current suspicion in our cultural moment, the current suspicion towards scientists, medical professionals, journalists, the media, etc. And we have proclivities towards conspiracy theory. Given our deep suspicion of authority, some can be more apt to believe certain voices, even when they lack credibility, simply because they oppose authority. In other words, we're so distrusting of authority that opposition to it can, for some of us, automatically sound more credible. And when it comes to God, as the 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead, and we have killed him. We want nothing to do with God's authority. We're reverberating the lie that Satan said in the garden. Did God really say? A God who actually has authority over us is terrifying. We, we must kill him. We must rid ourselves of him. We want to live our own way, and we don't want to be accountable to anyone but ourselves. Again, I'm just being descriptive here, helping us see the mood that we live in. All, the, all of these things I'm raising are complex subjects in themselves. My point is simply to raise, to direct our attention to these realities that we live in. Now, our suspicion and our resistance to authority is, is admittedly complex, and I'm not saying that it's always all bad. Nonetheless, as we look at this phenomenon, I think in many cases our resistance to authority is indicative of a desire to be our own authorities. We're not actually opposed to authority, so long as that authority is us. We're not actually, uh, 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 we, we, we resist the authority of others, in other words, when it infringes on our own sense of authority, our own autonomy, 
self-determination. So on the one hand, we resist, we oppose, we're suspicious. At the same time, I think we also want and look to authority. For instance, when we see injustice in the world, we oftentimes look for judges, like court judges, to make things right, the criminal justice system. That's why in, what was it, 2020, I may be getting the year right, but 2021 when uh, Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, people went to the streets demanding justice. We want things to be made right. We want authorities to act. It's like uh, today, if you watch the big sports game, inevitably there'll be a, a call that the referee makes that some people uh, find, that maybe one of the players finds questionable, and what will, the, what will they do? They'll look to the ref and they'll be like, come on, come on, why? Because we look to authorities to do the right thing. We feel offended, we feel violated when they don't. Or consider the current authoritarian type movements in our current society when it comes to politics. Whether that's some on the left who want to use government authority to impose sexual and gender ideologies, forbidding dissent, maybe even punishing dissent in ways, or whether it's some on the right who would use government authority to sort of impose Christianity as a national template. The former wants to leverage authority for what it sees as self-actualization, expressing who they see themselves to be, the other in an attempt for what they see as self-preservation. Now, to be clear, my point here, again, is not to make comments on these things in themselves or to make a political comment. Not that those things aren't a valuable conversation to have. It's just not my point here. My point here, hear me, is simply to draw our attention to this reality as exemplary of a certain cultural mood we live in a certain attitude towards authority. We care deeply about authority. Even though we resist it, we care deeply about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had all the brouhaha in the 2020 election, right? Because people care who's in charge. We're not indifferent to authority. In other words, as much as we may, in one sense, resist and show suspicion towards authority, in another sense, we're actually not opposed to authority. We just want authority that's on our side, serving our agenda. But this is really just another way of wanting authority for ourselves, isn't it? It's just, we just want authority through the proxy of another who wields authority in our interest. We like authority when we feel its power serves our interests, work towards our end, sort of like the folks who, when Jesus heals, they like authority that does good things for them. But in that case, the authority is no longer actually the authority anymore. We are. And of course, this will not work when it comes to the authority of God. God's authority will not be manipulated. His authority is not something that we can simply tap into and leverage towards our own ends, sort of making ourselves God and him our servant making us the authority over his. But my point here is as we just look at the world around us, the world we live in, we simultaneously oppose and express deep suspicion of authority, and yet also we, 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 we deeply desire authority. We long for the right sort of authority, in other words, or at least how we think of it, the, our sense of right authority. 
And what this passage shows us is that Jesus is that right authority. Whether we recognize it or not, he is the authority we need. Jesus is the authoritative king of God's arriving kingdom. On the one hand, we see very clearly that Jesus has authority over disease. And we can derive great comfort from this. Just that specific example. Consider it. As we see here, Jesus has authority to heal of infirmities, of illness, of injury. And that same Jesus can heal today. His arm is not short. But that also means that where Jesus chooses not to heal, it's not for lack of authority to do so. He has the ability to. He has authority over our infirmities, in other words, even when he chooses not to heal them for whatever reason. Think of Paul with his thorn in the flesh. And so we can drive great comfort from knowing that that all disability, all disease, cancer, chronic pain that you or a loved one may experience, that none of these things, no matter what they are, none of them is outside of Christ's control. I find it interesting that um, Nick chose to sing that song. I don't know the name of it. Our only comfort in life and death, something along those lines. When I was planning on including that quote, that catechism question at this point in my sermon, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the first question of the New City Catechism, which is reflecting the Heidelberg Catechism. Because Jesus has control over all of our infirmities, all sickness, whether he heals them and he is able to, or whether he doesn't and is still in control over them. And ultimately, when all of us succumb to infirmities one way or the other, unless Christ returns before them, when we all die, when our bodies succumb to their weakness, Jesus has authority over the, that ultimate form of corruption over our body, death itself. I love the language of Romans 8 when, when Paul is reflecting on uh, what can separate us from the love of Christ. And of course, the answer is nothing, but he lists all these sort of rhetorical questions. Can death separate us from the love of Christ? No. I love this phrase that Paul uses too when he talks about, you know how oftentimes he talks about how we're in Christ, our union with Christ, we're, we're considered in Christ, we're joined to Christ. So we've been raised with Christ, we're justified in Christ and sanctified in Christ, all these salvation realities. But there's this other one too. He refers to believers who have died as being dead in Christ. In other words, death isn't something that sort of suspends their union with Christ. It's not some sort of gap that somehow has evaded Christ's authority. That even over death, we are, that Christ has authority even over death and in death, we are still in Christ. And ultimately, Jesus will bring final healing. Even if he chooses not to do so in this life, he will, for believers, ultimately raise our bodies from death. Tariel and I were studying, uh, a, a, we were studying a theology book together along with some other people and we were reflecting on the hope of the resurrection. And man, it was a glorious moment, wasn't it, Tariel? When we're thinking, someday, whether we develop technologies in this world where Tariel is able to walk again, or someday in the new creation, I'm going to play some basketball with Tariel. That's an awesome thought. That Christ has authority over all our infirmities. None of it is outside his grasp. No diagnosis, 
know anything. But also, Christ has authority over the demonic. And maybe we don't feel the weight of this one nearly as much because we sort of imbibe the worldview of our culture in which we are less apt to view the world as sort of enchanted with the supernatural. We live in a very naturalistic world. But there are dark forces in this world, what scripture calls the demonic. And Christ in his resurrection and ascension, the New Testament says, has disarmed them. Christ has disarmed rulers and authorities. 1 Peter 3.22 talks about when Christ has been raised from the dead, embarking in a new creation, and is seated at the right hand of God with authority, he has angels and authorities and powers all being subjected to him. It's all subjected to him. The Bible knows nothing of this sort of dualism that maybe we can slip into where we think that God and evil are sort of two equal dueling forces trying to battle it out to see who will win. No, no matter what evil we encounter in this life, it is under Christ's control. It only exists because Christ allows it to and only insofar as it's on his, on his leash. Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, that is, demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, his loving, saving purpose for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so on the one hand, when we think about the authority of Jesus, I think we derive great comfort from it. It meets the need that we long for. And on the other hand, I think it also challenges us. There's that sense where we don't like authority, right? And Jesus comes on the scene and we see his authority as the king. And our response, the response that's demanded is to submit to Christ. Jesus says, verse 14, or sorry, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is, I'm the authoritative king, God's kingdom has arrived. What is the response then? Repent and believe in the good message about that coming kingdom. I don't know if you're like me, but I think, I think this is typical of like uh, the first, firstborn child, children, is that sometimes you'll hear them, like I'll hear my kids playing in the basement and the firstborn child will take the role of the authority and be bossing the other kids around and sort of there's this facade I see some head nods back there there's this facade of like I'm in charge I'll tell you what to do we like to sort of take that role of authority on ourselves but what happens maybe there's a kerfuffle or there's some sort of hurt feelings and the grown-up steps into the room and that immediately vanishes like the charade just goes away immediately and that's how we are. We like to pretend like we're authority. Maybe we like to exert our authority over others. We're, we're living a charade, but then Jesus arrives on the scene and says the kingdom of God is at, is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The charade is over. His authority, too, is not just over what we might say is our spiritual lives or just some, like, corner of our lives. It is absolute. It is everything and so as his authority is absolute, so too is his claim over our lives. What's interesting is that salvation is entirely free, according to scripture. It is by grace, you can't earn it. Nothing you can do can deserve you salvation. And yet it will cost you everything. Salvation is entirely free, costing you nothing, 
and yet it requires of you everything, we might say. As Jesus says, those who will come after me must take up their cross and die to themselves. It's entirely graciously free, and yet it demands everything of us. We simultaneously oppose and are suspicious of authority. We want to be in charge, and yet we long for the promise of the authority to act on our behalf, to bring relief, to make things right. Deep down, we want a good authority. And we find that good authority that we long for in Jesus. But it requires abandoning our own claim to authority, claiming to rule our own lives, and acknowledging his authority. Lastly, I want to point you to a a little bit of a theme that we have uh, skirted by so far, but that's important here. And you'll notice it's this theme that some have called the messianic secret, this idea of Jesus kind of keeping things quiet. You see this in verse 24 and 25, that when Jesus uh, sends out the demon, he rebukes the demon and says, be silent. And then at the end of the passage, so not only towards the beginning, but then at the end, end of verse 34, and Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And this is not just a theme in this passage, it's a theme across the entire, entirety of Mark's gospel. Jesus regularly commands the demons to be silent about who he is, because interestingly, the demons, the supernatural, they know who he is. After healing people, Jesus strictly tells them not to tell anyone. Jesus often intentionally withdraws from the crowds in order to avoid them. After Peter confesses that he is the Christ, Jesus, quote, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And when Jesus was transfigured, revealing his glory, he does so, interestingly, in a private setting with only three of his disciples, charging them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so one of the questions is why? Why is Jesus doing this? It seems counterintuitive, right? Wouldn't Jesus want people to know who he is, especially when he comes on announcing the kingdom of God? Well, on the one hand, Jesus understandably silences the demons who oppose him and his mission, right? He doesn't want them proclaiming him. But secondly, claims of being the Messiah were apt to be misunderstood. People in that time associated it with uh, militaristic connotations or political revolution, the idea of overthrowing Rome. And so just on a practical level, if nothing else, it was necessary to spread, to silence the spread of these claims since there would have probably resulted very swift, premature intervention from Rome, right? But secondly, public announcement of Jesus as Messiah would have likely invited misunderstanding about who Jesus was, his person, and what he came to do, his mission. This is likely why when Jesus is in Gentile territory, for instance, he tells the man that he heals of demon possession there to go home and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. There he says go because he's in Gentile territory. There's less of those associations with the Messiah. Or why by the end of the book, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, the angel then tells the women at the empty tomb to go and tell. Now we're ready to proclaim that message. 
This theme, in other words, of the messianic secret highlights the need to understand the authoritative king properly. His authority is apt to be misunderstood. You see, in our fallen condition, we tend to misunderstand, misuse, misapply authority, right? That's why we're suspicious of it. We use it for our own advantage and to subjugate others. The exercise of Jesus' authority is different. He is the authoritative king who uses his authority not for his own advantage, but to serve others. This is what he teaches at the center of the book, right, in chapters 8 through 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve in this way, by giving his life as a ransom for many. And he calls us to use any power that we have to serve others as well, to do the same, lay down our life. Jesus is a king who quite unexpectedly came to suffer and die. The one who has authority over all things by nature of being the creator of all things has come to reclaim that authority. He's bringing the kingdom. But the way he wields that authority and establishes his kingship and reclaims his creation is in fact by paying the crimes for our rebellion against his authority. And that's the gospel, right? We get to the end of the book and, and, and the point in the book where we get this cluster of statements about Jesus as the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. The phrase doesn't show anywhere else in the book except for this one moment. And where is it? It's at the cross. There's a sort of parody being, being shown of Jesus wearing the purple robe, the crown of thorns. He's lifted up, he's enthroned, but how does he exercise his kingship? It's by dying for his subjects. He exercises his authority by suffering on our behalf. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to read to us a statement from the Reformed Belgic Confession that I think well articulates what we're doing, what God is doing in the Lord's Supper. The Belgic Confession says this. It says, Our gracious God, taking account of our weakness and our infirmities, has ordained the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. He has ordained them for us, thereby to seal unto his promises and to pledge of the goodwill, and to be pledges of the goodwill and grace of God's towards us. God has given us the ordinances as, as pictured promises of his, pictures of his promises in the gospel to us because he knows our weaknesses. He knows our disbelief. We ought to be like the man with the, whose boy was possessed. We say, I believe, help my unbelief. And God answers with the Lord's Supper. It continues that the ordinances are meant to nourish and strengthen our faith. How? Because God joins these pictured promises. He joins the pictures to the promise of the gospel. He joins the sacrament to the gospel so as to better present to our senses that which he has declared to us by his word, the very gospel that he proclaims to us through his word, and I have the privilege to proclaim to you today, he also then attaches his ordained signs to affirm those promises to all those who believe and partake. 